Good morning. If you're joining us by Facebook, we're about to read 66 verses together from Lamentations 3. If you're sitting here this morning in the flesh, we're about to read 66 verses together from Lamentations chapter 3. Please turn with me there now, because we're about to read 66 verses from Lamentations chapter 3. It's the apex of the center of the book. You'll get the flow of it, but it's not 22 verses, it's 66 verses. So to follow the alphabet of the Hebrew language and to think of it in English, it goes AAA verses 1, 2, 3, BBB verses 4, 5, and 6, CCC verses 7, 8, and 9. Well, you'll get the picture. It's designed to convey a complete picture, not only of the Hebrew alphabet and this lengthy acrostic in the Old Testament, but it's designed to, compl- to convey to God's people complete grief because this is a grievous situation that they find themselves in. We are in our sixth of eight weeks in a series titled Learning the Language of Lament, where we borrow freely from College Park Church and Pastor Mark Vrogop, who has introduced us afresh to the concept of prayers of lament and the language of lament, which a full one-third of our psalms are given to. We need to recover the language of lament because it saves us from our airbrushed version of ourselves and prepares us for the time in which our faith will face trial. It's not if, but it's when. And so then we can look at passages like Lamentations and reflect on them and find hope. So we're going to see that today. Let's read the 66 verses in Lamentations chapter 3 now, and I'll read it without qualification. I am the man who has seen affliction under the rod of his wrath. He has driven and brought me into darkness without any light. Surely against me he turns his hand again and again the whole day long. He has made my flesh and my skin waste away. He has broken my bones. He has besieged and enveloped me with bitterness and tribulation. He has made me dwell in darkness like the dead of long ago. He has walled me about so that I cannot escape. He has made my chains heavy. Though I call and cry for help, he shuts out my prayer. He has blocked my ways with blocks of stone. He has made my paths crooked. He is a bear lying in wait for me, a lion in hiding. He turned aside my steps and tore me to pieces. He has made me desolate. He bent his bow and set me as a target for his arrow. He drove into my kidneys the arrows of his quiver. I have become the laughing stock of all peoples, the object of their taunts all day long. He has filled me with bitterness. He has sated me with wormwood. He has made my teeth grind on gravel and made me cower in ashes. My soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is, so I say my endurance has perished. So has my hope from the Lord. Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore I will hope in Him. The Lord is good to those who wait for Him, to the soul who seeks Him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. Let him sit alone in silence when it is laid on him. Let him put his mouth in the dust. There may yet be hope. Let him give his cheek to the one who strikes, and let him be filled with insults. For the Lord will not cast off forever, but though he cause grief, He will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men, to crush underfoot all the prisoners of the earth, to deny a man justice in the presence of the Most High, to subvert a man in his lawsuit. The Lord does not approve. 
Who has spoken, and it came to pass, unless the Lord has commanded it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come? Why should a living man complain, a man, about the punishment of his sins? Let us test and examine our ways and return to the Lord. Let us lift up our hearts and hands to God in heaven. We have transgressed and rebelled, and you have not forgiven. You have wrapped yourself with anger, pursued us, killing without pity. You've wrapped yourself with a cloud so that no prayer can pass through. You've made us scum and garbage among the peoples. All our enemies open their mouths against us. Panic and pitfall have come upon us. Devastation and destruction. My eyes flow with rivers of tears because of the destruction of the daughter of my people. My eyes will flow without ceasing, without respite, until the Lord from heaven looks down and sees. My eyes cause me grief and the fate of all the daughters of my city. At the fate of all the daughters of my city. I have been hunted like a bird by those who were my enemies without cause. They flung me alive into the pit and cast stones on me. Water closed over my head. I said, I am lost. I called on your name, O Lord, from the depths of the pit. You heard my plea. Do not close your ear to my cry for help. You came near when I called to you. You said, Do not fear. You have taken up my cause, O Lord. You have redeemed my life. You have seen the wrong done to me, O Lord. Judge my cause. You have seen all the vengeance, all their plots against me. You've heard their taunts, O Lord, all their plots against me. The lips and thoughts of my assailants are against me all the day long. Behold, they're sitting and they're rising. I am the object of their taunts. You will repay them, O Lord, according to the work of their hands. You will give them dullness of heart. Your curse will be on them. You will pursue them in anger and destroy them from under your heavens, O Lord. May God bless the reading of his word and administer grace unto its hearers. So, this is a happy text, no? It's not really, is it? It's kind of a tough text. It's a sad text. It's a difficult text. What are we to make of texts like this? It begins with, I am the man who has seen affliction. This man we believe to be the prophet Jeremiah, the so-called weeping prophet. He has known pain over the course of his life. In fact, he began his life at sort of a high and his work at sort of a high. He worked underneath King Josiah, a kinsman and a good king. But from there, he saw five increasingly wicked kings and the destruction of the southern kingdom of Judah. He saw Judah caught in the crosshairs between Egypt to the west and Babylon to the east. And every single time Judah was faced with a decision, the leaders of Jerusalem didn't make good decisions. Very often, Jeremiah would be consulted, and then he would tell them the truth, and then he would be punished for his right prophecy. This happens a lot with the prophets. This isn't anything new. The man of God is very often shot down, literally or figuratively, at one point, In verses 54 and following, we find him recounting something that is narrated in the prophetic book of Jeremiah, where Jeremiah himself had told the truth to the people, and particularly to the king, and some of the other so-called prophets and priests didn't like it, and they orchestrated what would have been his death. They lowered him into a cistern, and if it hadn't been for an Ethiopian that found him sunken into the mud of an abandoned cistern, Jeremiah would have perished there in hunger and wasted away. But he reminds himself of that, and he cries out from the pit. And this whole lament, this middle section of Lamentations, 
looks and sounds like the words of a man who's trying to remind himself of who God is in the midst of circumstances that seem to scream that God cannot be the way that He is. And so I say to you this morning, if you are in circumstances that cause you to question the integrity of God, the attributes of God, the well-meaningness of God, if you are in a place in your life where your pain has caused you to have marginalized the promises of God, I want you to know that texts like Lamentations 3 are for you. God does not leave you without recourse in your pain. Lamentations 3 is a book for people that are completely disgusted and in despair. They're described as devastated, borderline destroyed. They're described as in panic in this chapter. And even though Jeremiah speaks in the first person, I am the man, I'm the man of sorrows, I'm the man of affliction, he's really speaking for every man and every woman. He's speaking for the entire community. For in this situation, the people had sinned generationally against the Lord and the cup of God's wrath against His people Israel had come to pass. They had not learned from the mistakes of the northern kingdom which fell to the Assyrian Empire in 722 B.C. And so in 586 B.C., the southern kingdom, the so-called apple of God's eye, fell and God's instrument to allow punishment to His people were the brutal Babylonians. And so it's hard to even imagine for Jeremiah the sun rising. It's hard for him to imagine good times, times of light. In fact, if you look down at verse 1 and 2, you see, I am the man who has seen affliction under the rod of his wrath. He has driven and brought me into darkness without any light. He can't even see light. Surely against me he turns his hand again and again the whole day long. That's not that God is against Jeremiah. It's that God is punishing the people that have largely rebelled against him, and Jeremiah swept up in it. Jeremiah's life story on this earth does not have a happy ending at all. Uh, most tradition says that he was killed in Egypt after the, the Jewish people fell to the Babylons, the Babylonians. He was whisked away to Egypt by a small band of holdouts, of Jewish holdouts, and he continued to prophesy in Egypt and they stoned him to death. And some people think that the Hall of Faith in Hebrews, where it talks about the man that was stoned to death, that some people think it was Jeremiah. We can't unequivocally say that, but the fact of the matter is it would fit with his near 90-year profile of life. Jeremiah did not have a life that got better and better and better as he was more and more faithful to the Lord. And I think that's instructive for us. It's, it's, it's not, we can't always look at exterior circumstances and know whether or not our pattern of life is pleasing to God, particularly if the world around us and the culture around us is, is anti-God, is going the other direction. And so this poem gives voice to us as we react to the pain around us, we reflect on the nature of God, and we return to what it means to do good before God, for He is good. And so those, that's the way that we'll take it on its parts today. We're going to in verses 1 through 20, just reflect on them and see how we can react to what's going on around us. And it's okay. In verses 21 to 24, we're going to reflect on the very nature of God. So it's react and then reflect. And then finally, as we look at a few verses after verse 25, we're going to see how to return 
to living a life that is more faithful to the Lord that's been so faithful to us. But I need to give one more disclaimer. Lamentations offers no quick fixes, no easy answers, no trite counsel, no airbrushed life, no airbrushed Christianity. Lamentations is where the weeping prophet gets real before God, and we get to see this man's emotions, and he's working his way back to trusting again, and that's where it helps us not to give up. If you are on the precipice of giving up, this chapter can certainly help you. So look afresh at chapter 3, verse 1. I am the man. Well, who is this man? We've already talked about it. Chapter 3, verse 1 says, I am the man. Jeremiah is the man. In the book of Jeremiah, it says he asks a question to the Lord in his plight. Why did I come from the womb to see toil and sorrow and spend my days in shame? Jeremiah, his life was marked with one disappointment after another, after another, after another, and yet he would find God in the disappointments. Family of his, King Josiah, a good king, died in battle on Mount Armageddon, Mount Megiddo in 608 B.C., and the years that followed were atrocious, 605, 597, 587, years of catastrophe, of siege, of deportation. All Judah and Jerusalem mourned for Josiah and his death, and Jeremiah mourned for Josiah himself, singing men and women spoke of Josiah and their lamentations, and they wrote about it in Second Chronicles 35, 24, and 25, which was mentioned a few weeks earlier in this series. So the individual lament in Lamentations chapter 3 is also expressive of the common tragedy of the whole covenant community, but it happened in slow motion over a period of decades. I mean, their punishment was meted out over time, and they continued to rebel and to rebel and to rebel. But it seems that at this point, now that Lamentations is being written by Jeremiah, after Jerusalem has been utterly decimated, it seems at this point at least some people are ready to hear the truth. Jeremiah keeps telling it. It probably cost him his life. But some people are ready to hear the lament, the truthful lament before God. We know this man was faithful, but he wasn't successful. He was faithful, but he wasn't at ease and he wasn't happy. I wonder this morning, as you reflect on the unease in your life, and you react, would be the word I want to use right now, as you react to the unease in your life, do you have room in your faith for lamentation? For Jeremiah's? Do you have room for Paul's dark night of his soul, like 2 Corinthians 12? Or to pray prayers of lament, like what Jesus prayed from the cross when he said, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? If you do have need for that, you can recover the three-quarters of your Bible, the three out of every four pages that's called Old Testament or Old Covenant Scripture. We need the prophets because the prophets help us to calibrate our expectations in the midst of circumstances that seem clearly to not be easy or happy. There's time for us to get back on track. There's time for our churches to get back on track with that which God has granted us to see, and that is that outward circumstances is not always a good reflection of inward faithfulness in our churches. In fact, sometimes it's not a good reflection at all. Jeremiah was ran out on the rail and they had no place to worship, and yet he was faithful to the one that was more faithful to him. This reaction, though, is painfully real. I just kind of recap a few things in verses 2 and following. Will we have darkness without any light? God, will you continue to seem like an enemy? Jeremiah says in the first person, I'm hungry, I'm broken, I'm confined. My prayer life is dry. Opposite of the shepherd's psalm, instead of making my paths straight, I feel like he's made my paths crooked 
verse 9 says. Verse 10 talks about animals running wild. There's no control of the animals. There's not enough people and systems to do it. Lions ambush human beings. This is a hard thing to get your mind around in the West because you live in fortified cities. But out in the desert, when all of your strong leaders have been hauled off to Babylon and the people are dispersed and governing structures have disintegrated, lions run amok. It's a danger. He says in verse 12, I'm hunted. He says in verse 14, I'm a joke. They sing songs about people like Jeremiah. They impugn them. It's as bad as it seems it can be. He says, my life is bitter, verse 15. He describes himself in a bitter fashion. He talks about wormwood. Look at verse 19 as well as verse 15. It says, remember my affliction, verse 19, and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. Verse 15, he has filled me with bitterness. He has sated me with wormwood. Wormwood is a word that is used eight times in the Old Testament, four times in either Jeremiah or Lamentations, twice right here as I've read to you. It's used once in the New Testament in Revelation chapter 8, verses 10 and 11 to describe the name of a star as wormwood. It's been popularized by author C.S. Lewis, where wormwood is an understudy to screw tape in his book, The Screw Tape Letters. The word is an inspiration for a novel written, as I said, by C.S. Lewis in 1942. And the book is a series of letters from a senior official written as an allegory to an understudy in the underworld, his nephew, Wormwood, who had just been assigned his first patient or human to try to tempt with sin. Wormwood's job in the screw tape letters was to further corrupt man's soul, his patient. The all-informative Wikipedia summarizes it this way. A striking contrast is formed between Wormwood and Screwtape. After the second letter, Wormwood is depicted as anxious to tempt his patient into extravagantly wicked and deplorable sins, often recklessly, while Screwtape takes a more subtle stance. As in letter 12, when Screwtape remarks, the safest road to hell is the gradual one for the patient. The gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. Lewis picks up on Wormwood and the use of a name Wormwood from Revelation, and he uses this character to describe someone that was not wise in leading people on the path of destruction. Screwtape, the wiser demon, says and opts for a slower pace to destruction. I might say to you this morning from another book, by C.S. Lewis, that God whispers to us when times are good, but he seems to shout to us during the times of pain. In another place, Lewis said, pain is God's megaphone for the believer. Better a difficulty with a nearness to God than a luxurious life on the path paved to hell. The Bible says in the book of Matthew, broad is the path that leads to destruction, but narrow is the way that leads to life. If God gives you experiences that drive you to wake up, to see Him more clearly, to treasure truths about Him as your portion, merciful and faithful, compassionate to you, then the hearing would be worth the pain, would it not? Paul David Tripp wrote in his book on suffering, What we suffer isn't a failure of God's plan, but a tool to bring us in line with God's plan so that we'll love what He has prepared for us more than we love our present comfort. Isn't that helpful? So that we'll love what He has prepared for us more than we love our present comfort comfort. Tripp advocates in our suffering that God is at work giving us something much better than we even want. 
In suffering, we experience brokenness, growth, worth, and glory. Pain is not pleasure, no. It wasn't for Christ, and it isn't for us. But pain is part of the process of Christian growth. Lament is a prayer in pain that leads to trust. We've been saying that in this series. Lament is a prayer in pain that leads to trust. In suffering, we lament for what is longed for in the presence of God. He is actually reacting to circumstances around him, is Jeremiah, in Lamentations chapter 3, verses 1 to 20, that are dire. He says he eats dirt, or his teeth grind on gravel. He says he can't even remember happiness. He feels hopeless. He's internally stewing on bitterness like wormwood. Gall, verse 19, 20. And so if God isn't going to whisk Jeremiah away on a chariot right now, if he's not going to whisk you away on a chariot right now, and you must continue to abide even with people, what could possibly help you? Well, I'm indebted to Rogop for helping me with this phrase, and I'd encourage you to write it down. Hope springs from truth rehearsed. Hope springs from truth rehearsed. I'll say it one more time. Where do you find your hope? Hope springs from truth rehearsed. I want you to look at the pivot in Lamentations chapter 3, verse 20 to 21. He says in verse 20, My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. He's talking about the wormwood and the bitterness, but he starts talking to himself, to his own soul. Not as a crazy person, but as a person of faith. And here's the pivot. But, verse 21, but, this I call to mind, shub, it's a word that means to return, can be thought of as repentance. This I call to mind, calling to mind, again, is the intimation. And therefore he has hope. Well, what does he call to mind that gives him hope in hopelessness? Where, where, where do the hopeless find hope? As I've said, hope comes, hope springs from truth rehearsed. And here's what he says that brings hope in hopeless times. He rehearses this truth. He says, The steadfast love of God, of the Lord, never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness, or great is your faithfulness. The song says, great is thy faithfulness. I would encourage you to commit these two verses to memory, perhaps three. But I call this to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. This is the pivot point in the lament. It's like an oasis in a desert that all of a sudden appears. Lamentations 3.23. It's something that happens inside of him, but it's something that happens nonetheless. And his hope comes from truth rehearsed. To dare some of you this morning, as I want to do, I want to dare you to hope. Risk is there when you run the risk of praying a prayer and you cannot be sure your circumstances will change. So, as one author puts it, you can live in a bad marriage. You can keep praying for your prodigal child or your prodigal parent or your prodigal sibling, your prodigal loved one. You can keep dealing with difficult financial circumstances. You can keep taking the body blow of what people are saying about you. You can live with the nagging difficulty of what's going on in your life. Your circumstances may not change, but the reality is you can find hope by rehearsing the truth of who God is. Hope springs from truth rehearsed. That's the pivot. 
is when you turn from simply reacting to reflecting on who God is. When you turn from point one of the sermon to point two, from reacting to everything that's going on around you, which is real, to reflecting on who God is and His great faithfulness and His mercies that are made new every morning. The thematic framework that we draw from verses like this is turning to God and complaining about what's actually going on around us, being transparent with Him because He already knows what we think anyway, and then asking for His help and trusting Him. Lament is a prayer in pain that leads to trust, and your hope springs from truth rehearsed. You actually need to rehearse or recite the truths about who God is to yourself when you seem to have forgotten them or when they seem to not be bringing anything to bear on your immediate situation. You live by through suffering, not by, not by what you see or what you feel, but by what you believe. You have to teach yourself. You have to preach to yourself in times of pain and, some, and suffering. We lament by faith and not by sight. Lament anchors your grief in the bedrock of God's character. It's an honesty before God that says, I'm reacting to my circumstances this way. My circumstances are real, but so are you. Where are you in this? And you can feel the emotions of the prophet Jeremiah in these 66 verses going back and forth, a push and a pull and a push and a pull. But the thing to remember is he is talking to his Lord. He is crying out. And when God seems like an adversary to him, he's still talking to him. I want you to know this morning it's an achievement if you're still talking to God. It's an achievement. It is not a terrible thing. Far worse for you to stop talking to God and be resided in your own wormwood, your own gall, your own bitterness. Far worse is that. To put it differently, far worse for Screwtape to have his way with you. Far worse for you to be not able to hear, not listening. Far worse for you to be so far down the slaughterhouse drive, as one author put it to use a cow metaphor, that you're so close to the end and coming along and so comfortable that you don't see that you're on the broad path that leads to destruction instead of the narrow way that leads to life. Pain is and can be God's megaphone to talk to us when we seem to have forgotten how to hear. You live through suffering by what you believe, not just what you feel. Your feelings can lie to you. We lament by faith and not by sight. God may use the difficulty of your life to help you to come and put your faith in Jesus. Perhaps you're here this morning and you've never trusted the Lord Jesus to be your personal Savior. You've never followed Him. Doesn't become Lord of your life. I want to urge you this morning that it is possible that the Lord disrupts your otherwise easy life to awaken you to spiritual things. If that's the case this morning, we just urge you to put your trust in the Lord. It's not a magical phrase that you say. It's not some formula that you put together. It's a contrite heart. That's what the Lord is pleased with, where you turn to Him and you say, Lord, I, my life is not easy, but I, I have rehearsed enough truths about who you are to know that I need you. Would you help me? Would you help me? And what you'll find, like us, us fellow broken people, is that all our help comes from the Lord. Really, all of it. It all comes from Him. He's our everything. As one author put it, to have everything in the world and to have Jesus is to have no more than to just have Jesus. Because Jesus is everything. It's all His. If you have favor with the King, you don't need the King's stuff. The King will make sure you have what you need. 
If you try to hoard the king's stuff and you don't know the king, you lose both. Put your faith in the Lord. The Lord is good even when situations are not good. Even when your life seems to imitate Jeremiah's more than it does some great conqueror, some great businessman, some great accomplished woman or warring king. Listen to verse 23 afresh of Lamentations 3. It says that the Lord's mercies are new every morning. That's so impressive for a man that is in darkness without any light. He's preaching to himself. He's preaching to us. The Lord is pleased to use this lament way later. His mercies are made new every morning. Now, I need to say something about this verse and its context and the way that we use it as moderns. Very often we lift Lamentations chapter 3, verse 23, and the verses just immediately around it. And it's a favorite of ours. Really, verses 22 and 23, they make really nice decorative plaques in the house, don't they? You know, great is thy faithfulness, Lord unto me. We love Thomas Chisholm's great hymn. We'll sing it here in a minute. It's a great song. But I need you to understand something about texts of proof like Lamentations 3, 22 and 23. They are impotent without the context of the other 64 verses. He is saying, great is thy faithfulness, when he's not seeing very much of it. This guy's situation is bad, getting worse, trending downward, and hope springs from truth rehearsed. He's not saying this having seen God's deliverance in the moment. He's saying it, remembering God's faithfulness of old and putting his faith in God's faithfulness of new. He's saying something about the nature of God and the promises of God, even if it means him losing his head. Great is thy faithfulness. Your mercies are made new every morning. And again, as I said earlier in the sermon, I have to ratchet this down with you. Do you have room in your faith for the third of the Psalms that sound like this? Do you have room in your faith For when things continually and persistently go wrong. And yet to know that he doesn't lose one of his sheep, that he is for you even if you're corporately swept up in the punishment of the rebellion of a group of people. He still loves you and cares for you and his mercies are made new and your repentant faithful life every single morning. Just as soon more sure... Then the sun comes up in the east and sets in the west. I can see it from my office every morning as I'm studying and praying. Just as sure as it comes up, more sure than that sun is the sun. And there'll come a day, Revelation 22 says, when that sun will get replaced with the light of the sun, Jesus Christ. And more sure than that sun comes up, and it does every day except for in Joshua 10 when the sun stood still and it still came up. More sure than that sun's going to come up. And the darkness is going to give way to dawn. More sure than that is His mercies made new every single morning. Every crack of dawn for His people. Do you know Him? This is our Lord. And we rehearse His truths to bring ourselves out of the proverbial pit. I already told you He was thrown into a cistern at one point in His life. Left for dead. He cried out to the Lord from the depths. Quote quote Psalm 131. Out of the depths I cry. And the Lord delivered him. They did. He actually saved him from that, only to put him back under house arrest and eventually have him hauled off in stone. So it's not like Jeremiah's life, he got saved from the pit. Well, then it was all glorious. He set up on the throne. No, he didn't. I mean, he, the Lord would give him just enough, but what the Lord gives us that we need is not often what we want. Do you have room in your faith for Lamentations 3? I want you to have it today. I want you to have it. 
as he says these things about his Lord, his mercies, his steadfast love, the nature of the Lord, he recites in verse 24, the Lord is his portion, is his reward. It's his everything. It's his inheritance. He'll hope in him when he has no material possessions and doesn't know where the next meal's coming from. And then he says, the Lord is good. In the midst of so much pain, verse 25, the Lord is good. And he's particularly good to those of us who wait for him. We're not good at waiting, are we? I mean, I wasn't good at waiting when internet was dial-up. I'm really not good at waiting now. It's not an easy time when you have to wait. But that says more about us in our cultural moment than it does about God and His faithfulness, doesn't it? Some of the deepest and most rich relationships are forged over time, and your relationship with God is forged as you wait. And as you wait to see the purpose of the plight of your life, and as you, by faith, even wait to see what it looks like in eternity. Now, sometimes we couldn't handle the why behind the what right now of what we're going through. What you need to know is the Lord is good as you wait for Him, as you seek Him. That's why we gather. Verse 25 says, as you seek Him, we gather to seek Him. We don't just gather to organize ministries. We don't just, you know, just gather to count numbers and noses. It's not, we, we don't gather for some type of, exterior, type of exterior measure of success. We gather to seek the Lord. Like, that's why we read Scripture so much and sing the Scripture and pray the Scriptures because we're gathering to seek the Lord. That's the definition of faithfulness, is to rehearse the truths about God's attributes back to Him and to wait, seek Him. I wonder this morning, could that be a renewed reason why you're here, is to seek the Lord? It's not too late. His mercies are new for those of us that simply repent and reflect on who He is. His mercies are new. It says in verse 26, It's good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. Think about that. What an odd place to put a statement about in his youth. What an odd prepositional phrase, eh? It's saying here in verses 25 through 30, after we've reacted to our circumstances that are so bad, after we've reflected on the attributes of God, now that we are returning to faithfulness to the God that's been faithful to us, it's saying it is good for us even while you're young, for those of you that still have youth on your side, to wait. It's good for you to wait. It's good for you to seek. It's good for you to sit before the Lord and be quiet and listen. Silence, this text says. It's good for you to bear the yoke. Now, I'm not going to follow a God that causes me to go through hardship. Then you won't follow the God who is. You never will. That's the reason why the Gospel of Luke tells us when we're calling people to faith, we're supposed to call you to count the cost of discipleship because there's a cost. Following Jesus, it's, it's not a bed of roses. It ends magnificently. But the model that you have is a, is a man of sorrow and sufferings and affliction. Don't you understand that? We do you no favors to bring you in. It's some kind of a seeker-sensitive hoorah, only for you to fall on your face when you read life like Lamentations 3. I'm not saying we should be down about everything. I don't mean that, but I mean, you do realize Following Jesus is not the path of least resistance. You do realize that, right? And yet we say, great is thy faithfulness. We say it and we'll sing it in a moment. We rehearse that waiting is not a waste. We rehearse his attributes of steadfastness in our lives. We, we know that he's peeling back the layers of our hearts to help us to rely on him for who he really is. 
I wonder today, just a few closing questions and a scripture to help us see this perhaps a little more vividly. Just a few questions. One, I wonder, are you trapped in bitterness? Are you so, so bitter about the city that's been destroyed that you can't imagine the blessing of the city that's being built? The new Jerusalem coming down? We should lament the pain and realize it and react to it. But if we stay there and don't talk to God and don't get to the point of rehearsing truths about who He is, we will become so flamboyantly bitter that we will not have ourselves opened up to God's refreshment for us, regardless of the circumstance. Who God is for you is not dependent on your circumstances. If that were the case, the cross of Calvary would have been an epic fail. And people like the prophet Jeremiah couldn't have been prophets at all. His biography is a real juggernaut until you think of it in these terms. I mean, he just doesn't, it just doesn't end well for Jeremiah. It may or may not end well for you. I mean, it's appointed for a man once to die and then the judgment, right? I mean, we're going to face the failing of our heart. We're going to face the failing of our lives, of our bodies. The Bible says outwardly we're wasting away, but inwardly we're being renewed. If we don't have a category for God being faithful, even in the midst of our own, our man's sufferings, we, we, we don't have a consistent faith. One pastor said, when you finish on your deathbed, you'll wake up and realize what God was doing all throughout your life that you never even knew. God was doing something beautiful. It was too big for you to see. His mercies come up like the sun every day. Great is thy faithfulness, man of sorrows. Jeremiah was not the only man of sorrows. The suffering servant is described prophetically in Isaiah 53. As such, I'm going to read it to you now to close. This is a passage that we read when we remember the Lord through the Lord's Supper. It's a passage that we read most every time that we take the Lord's Supper, and we intend to do it again and afresh on September the 6th, and we read this passage. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. He was a man of sorrow. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We've turned, every one, to our own way. And the Lord laid on him, laid on that suffering servant, that man of sorrows, the iniquity of us all. Jesus, the man of sorrows, took that on for us so that we could be saved. The gospel is that each of us, we've gone astray, but God didn't lay his wrath on you like you deserved. Instead, he laid it, if you'll receive it, on Jesus, on the substitute sacrifice. God laid the wrath that you deserve for your sins, the iniquity of us all, on Christ. And on the cross, we who are suffering find this great wonder that our Lord wasn't immune to suffering. He came down and got involved in it. While no religion has resolved the riddle of good God in a painful world to our all, all of our satisfaction, I'll say this. The reasons why our all-powerful God 
doesn't just fix everything right now to our specification cannot be that he doesn't care about us. Because otherwise, Jesus, the only perfect man, wouldn't have taken on suffering for you on the cross so that you could have the gospel. And that man of sorrows makes all the difference when you're going through your time of sorrow. Would you bow your heads with me as we pray? God, turn our mourning into dancing. Turn our sorrow into shouts of acclamation for your goodness and your grace. We ask that you would help us, regardless of circumstance, to find hope by rehearsing truths about you. Because we know that hope springs from truth rehearsed. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.